one of my first big AVM projects. There were a lot of challenges that I helped the team overcome and I was so pumped to lead it. And then it was an abysmal failure. And it just made me realize oh, I had my eyes on the wrong thing. I was way too excited about leading a project when the reality is getting it to market or not wasn't really the success whatsoever. It was what should I have seen that should have made me be the loudest person on the team saying, this is wrong. This isn't going to win. But I didn't do that. I measured success based on traversing the trappings of the process and the challenges and by getting it to market. And that was the absolute wrong measure of success. If the real measure was how confident are you that this is going to win once it gets in the hands of the consumers. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, Humor Engineer. Roman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Mark Mercurio, president and CEO of the Gorilla Glue Company. It was a great conversation about focusing on how to win while also having fun. But first, we wanted to share an amazing opportunity for all of our end-of-year giving. As you may know, the PNG Alumni Foundation creates economic empowerment opportunities for those in need around the world, providing marginalized communities sustainable paths to prosperity. As a registered nonprofit with hundreds of volunteers around the world, the PNG Alumni Foundation does this each year by providing grants to some amazing organizations, funded through contributions by alums like you and me. The PNG Alumni Foundation is creating real impactful economic opportunities for local communities across rural Africa and Asia and urban Mumbai and Cincinnati, as well as so many other amazing and deserving programs around the world powered by PNG people. And for the month of December to accelerate all of our year-end giving, we've got two really exciting opportunities that we hope will motivate you to donate to the great work of the PNG Alumni Foundation. First, Thanks to the generosity of former PNG CEO John Pepper and his wife Francie, all year-end donations of any size will be matched dollar for dollar. And to make things even more interesting, all donations given in the month of December will also make you eligible to win a 30-minute Zoom call with some of our most prominent alumni. Your donation of any size will enter you for the chance to win a conversation with folks like former PNG CEO AG Laffley, former Unilever CEO Paul Pullman, Logitech CEO Bracken. Daryl, Danone President Sylvia Debija, former Clorox CEO Ben Odor, and many more accomplished leaders. You can learn more on how to donate and to win a chance for an amazing one-on-one alumni conversation at pgalums.com slash raffle. Or you can simply give and have your donations matched by John and Francie Pepper at pgalums.com slash donate. No donation is too small or too big, and it's never too late to start giving back. Your donation is tax deductible and through the power of PNG people will be put to great use uplifting communities around the world. So be sure to visit pgalums.com slash raffle or pgalums.com slash donate for your chance to donate and win before the end of the year. And now back to our conversation with Mark Mercurio, president and CEO of the Gorilla Glue Company. 
It was a great conversation about focusing on how to win while also having fun. Here's a quick bio. Mark Mercurio is the president and CEO of the Gorilla Glue Company, a leading family-owned producer of consumer branded glues, tapes, and personal care products based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Prior to becoming CEO in 2019, Mark served as the company's chief marketing officer and president of their international business. Before joining Gorilla Glue, Mark spent 10 years at Procter & Gamble in various marketing roles, including in fabric care, service care, trade marketing, and pet care. Mark started his career with Accenture as an IT management consultant on various ERP installations and post-merger systems integrations, and he holds a BS in civil engineering from the University of Cincinnati and an MBA from the University of Virginia's Darden Graduate School of Business. Mark also serves as a vice chair on the board of trustees at the Children's Home of Cincinnati. I was excited to chat with Mark because Gorilla Glue is often ranked as one of the best places to work in Cincinnati, and I wanted to learn why. A big part of their global success has been their workplace culture, which came from being family-operated for years, with Mark being the first non-family member to run the business. And I was curious about how Mark managed that transition. And when asking that question, he shared a great perspective on what it means to be a leader through transition, especially when the previous leaders were so well regarded. In addition to that, I really liked Mark's take on having fun at work. I'm certainly biased since I've been helping businesses infuse smart levity and fun into their practices for over a decade. But I have to agree with Mark when he said, if I wasn't at a place that was fun, I wouldn't be there. As I like to say, you know, what gets fun gets done. We spend far too much time at our work not to enjoy what we do. And in the face of the quote unquote great resignation, aka the big quit, companies that have a positive workplace culture are going to be at a competitive advantage. This was all balanced with Mark's desire to succeed in business. So it wasn't just about having fun, but also getting really good results. And that's something he picked up in his very first job way back as a paperboy. Throughout the entire conversation, Mark shares the stories and insights he's picked up along the way that make him the leader he is today for Gorilla Glue. So let's dive right in. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark. Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Drew. It's great to do this. I've listened to many of these, and so I feel honored and humbled to be able to participate on this side. So thank you. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're very, very excited to chat with you. Now, some may already know your professional story, but you graduated with a degree in civil engineering from University of Cincinnati, go Bearcats, and started working as a consultant at Accenture before earning your MBA from the University of Virginia. From there, you started at P&G, first in consumer market knowledge, and then later as an ABM and brand manager for brands such as Swiffer and Imes and for customers like Family Dollar. And then after 10 years, you moved to Gorilla Glue, starting first as vice president of marketing, then CMO, and now you are the president and CEO of the organization. So there's a lot in there that I want to ask about, but I'm curious about who you were before kind of that career journey began. When you were growing up in Toledo, what did you want to grow up to become? Was it, hey, CEO of something or was it something else? I would say all the way up until the time they asked me to be CEO, I didn't necessarily put wanting to be CEO as a career choice. Early days, I was really good at science and math. And so I, I kind of just assumed I'd be an engineer. And that's why I went into engineering school. And then as I kind of grew through college and high school, what I found I really enjoyed doing is just working with teams. 
and being on a team and at times when it was right to lead a team and just working with other people to deliver cool results. And so that's what I really liked. And that's kind of driven a lot of my career choices was trying to find the place where team building and working as a team was the most important essence of delivering and achieving. And so for as long as I can remember, going back to when I could think about it, that's how I thought about my career. It was less about wanting to be a CEO or an engineer or a marketer or any of that. It was, it was really more about really thriving and being in team, team building environments. Well, I like that. And, and sometimes that focus is sometimes, oh, I know I want to do this specific thing. I'm similar, I'm always kind of the engineering mindset, but it, maybe this is where you and I are different. I don't know if I need to be around teams. I'm okay with just me. And, you know, so it's great to recognize what you like and don't like. And so from growing up, do, do you remember the first way that you made money? Oh my gosh. I worked when I was, I think when I was 10 or 11, I asked if I could buy a paper route. And I think my dad was, and mom and dad were like, you sure you want to do this? And so I had a paper route. And then from there, I think that's all I did was work. I had a paper route. I caddied and I worked at the Anderson's general store in Toledo. And I did all three of those at the same time, starting for as early as I could. As soon as they could take an application from me, I worked. And some of that was from my parents sort of urging to have responsibility and learn about money and contribute towards my own life expenses in an early age. And so at the time, I didn't really think anything of it. I just worked a lot. And then when I went to college and I found out that not everybody did that, I was like, oh, okay, I guess there's a there's another way to live. But that's, yeah, as soon as I could make money, I was out there making money. I love it. A paper route. That is the traditional, that's the thing. The thing that when I think about it, I remember Paperboy on Nintendo. That's the only paper right thing that I Oh did. yeah. The, oh yeah. That game was fun. And I was obsessed about being the best. I mean, if they wanted the paper shoved between the storm door and the main door, I would do it. If they wanted it in the mailbox, I would do it. If they wanted it around the backyard, I would do it. I was obsessed with it. And again, I, my parents, I'm sure drilled that into me, but, but yeah, I took it serious. That's amazing. And so it sounds like maybe from the lessons either from your parents or maybe from these early jobs, but are there any of these kind of childhood lessons that either stand out to you that you still remember or things that maybe kind of informed what you did a little bit later? Any specific stories or lessons you remember? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that were instilled in me early days. And the first was just the value of hard work. That was one thing that my family instilled in me and went even so far as to some of the choices I made. I caddied and Caddying was an interesting one because you didn't have to show up ever. You could caddy one round a week. You could caddy one round a month. You could caddy two rounds a day. And so you were directly impacted by the work you put in and it was your choice. And same thing with, I grew up, I wrestled when I was younger. And wrestling is this great sport when you might not be as athletic or fast or tall or big, but you were rewarded and you tended to have success if you worked hard. And so I feel like that was some of the biggest things I think were instilled in me early was the value of hard work and the choices that you yourself can make to grow and to build yourself. And then the second thing would probably be around, I did switch schools a few times and learning how to find yourself in an environment where maybe you don't know everything around you or everybody around you and learning to kind of be comfortable in your own skin. Those were, I think, a couple of most important lessons that I learned from from those early years. Oh, I like it. And that, that's a great point about kind of caddying where you think my first job was working at Meyer, which for people that don't know is, is a grocery store similar to a Walmart or a Target, et cetera. And, and so that was the thing where like I was expected to be there. Someone would call if you're like, you're supposed to work today. But to your point of being a caddy, it's kind of, no, you're either there or not. You're kind of making this choice of, of showing up versus someone expecting you to be there. Yeah. And my sons wrestle and it's the same sort of idea. It's like, it's not, hey, coach expects you to be there 
today in the off season or whatever. It's like, no, there's an open mat. You can go or don't. And I've kind of been gravitated to those things. And yeah, it's not, I'm on the schedule. I have to go. It's what do I want to do that day? Even newspapers, the papers are there at 5 a.m. You can do them at 5 a.m. or you can do them at 10. Guess what? People want them there as early as possible. So get up early and do them, but you don't have to. And so it's sort of just really instilled the value of uh, hard work and making the right personal choices. Oh, no, I, I really, really like that. And so so you take that kind of work ethic, that that focus. And as you said, you, you were good at solving problems and things like that. So you go to, to UC and University of Cincinnati. And after you graduate, you start as a consultant at Accenture. But then so after a couple of years, you left to get your MBA. And I'm curious, what was that decision to say, OK, I've in, I'm a consultant for a little while. What was the prompt to then say, I'm going to go back to for my MBA? Well, the key thing was that when I was in consulting, I was doing post-merger integration of back office systems. So payroll, HR, benefits administration, some financial systems. And I would be in there and I was working with great people and high-powered people and the CIOs and VPs in IT and whatnot. But I realized there was some other place where the vision for the organization in terms of where the growth was going to come from, where the value as an organization was going to be created. And I knew that wasn't where I was in the world of back office mer- post-merger integrations. So I said, I, I think I want to be more in that front part of the office where we're setting the vision and setting the strategy. I didn't know why. <laughs> I didn't know why. I just felt like I don't want to be this far removed from those decisions. I don't know why I want to be closer to those decisions, but I don't want to be this far removed from those decisions. So that prompted me to make a career choice. And early in my career, I made a lot of choices that were based on what wouldn't close the most doors. <laughs> it wasn't so much. And it was like, what are my options? If I make this choice, what doors close for me? So even as I studied engineering, I knew after the first semester, I didn't want to be an engineer. But as I looked at it, I was like, well, okay, from what I can see, engineers are able to get jobs in lots of different fields. So I'm going to just going to stay here in engineering. And that worked out to my benefit. And then consulting, same thing. I was like, I don't really know for sure what I want to do, but I see a lot of people have a lot of options coming out of consulting. So I went into consulting. And then the same thing was kind of true with my MBA. I was like, all right, I know I want to get into more of the front office of things, more the commercial strategy setting part of things. But I wasn't sure what industry I wanted to go into. So I decided instead of just picking up from consulting and going into another business or a line of my career, I wanted to get that education. So, and it worked out well. It opened up a lot of different doors for me. I was that much more committed to the choices I made on the other side. And yeah, so that's how I ended up there. Well, and I think that it's a couple of things. I don't know if you have seen the musical Hamilton, but it's like, I want to be in the room where it happens. I love that as a decision. That's exactly right. And that's a good, a very good analogy. I want to be in the room where it happens. And to me, it wasn't a, it was, like I said, I told you, I don't know why that was the case. It was, it wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't for the the same reasons as in Hamilton, but it was, yeah, I just felt like that was where the action was. So. Yeah. And it's like making that decision of like, I'm doing this thing. I have to do this post this back system integration thing because someone else made a decision elsewhere. It's like, it's interesting to then think about what that decision was and, and be there. And I think what's really valuable for particularly maybe some of our younger listeners or people who are still unsure of what they want to do. I really find this, this approach interesting of like, not necessarily what's going to get me to this specific thing. Cause if you don't know it, it feels overwhelming, but to say, okay, what's going to keep most doors open or what's going to lead to more open doors is kind of this fascinating decision process. And you touched upon something that I think is really interesting is that you said by making those decisions, it made them, it made you more sure of them or stronger in them. Does that make sense? Can you tell a little bit more about what you mean by that? 
Yeah. I mean, listen, I look back to when I was 17, I decided what major to go into. And it was, hey, I don't know too many 17-year-olds who know with that kind of certainty what they want to be when they're 40. So you do what your counselor tells you or your parents tell you or what US News and World Report says is going to be the biggest careers in five years. And then you get there and you're like, oh, okay, this wasn't what I thought it was. I went into environmental engineering and I was like, I didn't think I was going to be designing wastewater treatment systems. But of course, what did I know? I was 17. So yeah, all those choices were like, okay, I could go do this career in engineering and probably have been pretty good at it. But the second I go down that route, what are the things I'm not going to be able to do? And you're going to start to get pigeonholed. And now, not to be fair, I mean, there's a lot of different career paths from engineering. I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth and say that I probably would have navigated my way just fine to where I needed to be. But that was how I made choices back then. Like, okay. And even before I knew what a decision tree was, I thought in terms of decision trees, all right, this node is going to have these other nodes beyond it, but this node's going to have fewer of those or different ones. And I just took it one step at a time rather than try and chart some grand plan that was probably not going to come to fruition anyway. It was, it was a little bit of just put one foot in front of the other and do it eyes wide open. No, I love that idea of the nodes of moving through, right? Very much. Maybe in engineering, it reminds me of my computer science days, but it reminds me of like that application, but still to life. And so one of those nodes was then P&G. So after your MBA and you start at P&G, was it kind of what you expected? Was there anything that kind of happened or any lessons you learned early on from that career that you still keep with you today? Oh my gosh. I mean, so I did my internship at P&G and CMK in the family care. So on the, on the paper business, Bounty and Puffs and Charmin and whatnot. And, you know, I was just struck by how intelligent everybody was. I just, everybody had a bias towards being a leader. It didn't matter what function they were in. Working with so many different functions, just leaders everywhere. And then you realize the way I described it to folks at business school when I came back is it was a machine. I mean, it was a machine built for growth. And all the processes around it, whether it be stage gating process or master planning process or brand planning processes, everything was designed towards growth. And so that was just remarkable to me. And from the outside, I was almost hesitant to go to PNG because there was some sentiment that sometimes PNGers took themselves a little too seriously or almost an arrogance. And you, when you get in the doors, yeah, there was some of that. Sure, there was some of that. But I think for the most part, this thought that there was going to be this arrogance within the walls of PNG, that wasn't there. It wasn't something I felt. I was It was good people trying to do cool work and trying to grow as leaders and so yeah, it really exceeded my expectations in early days. And then as I transitioned my early career, I was debating a lot about whether or not I wanted to stay in, in the CMK side of things and the market insights or go into brand. When I made that move, I didn't look back there either. It was just, it was sort of the room where it happens choice again. I felt like so many choices were made around the brand building side of things. So I took that leap to jump in there too. But yeah, no, it, my time at PNG lived up to every bit of my expectations and more. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly looking at the, the resume side of things looks like a great kind of decision, but also a lot of hard work and a, an example of kind of this kind of climbing the corporate ladder from ABM to BM and then kind of making that switch and then jumping over to Gorilla and then CMO and then now president and CEO. But I'm curious, it's easy for us to look at the LinkedIn resume and kind of be like, oh yeah, here's this kind of easy flowing path. But I'm curious, 
in your career, was there any either a role or assignment or a project or something that you did that didn't quite work out the way that you expected? Or was it this kind of straight shot linear path that we might pretend like it is? Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say from a role progression, what roles I took both across companies and within companies, I don't have a ton of regrets. I feel like I made good choices there and and it all worked out pretty well for me. My biggest learnings that I think enabled my career were the things I learned within the roles that I took. The one that I look back on probably more than any role one of my first big AVM projects was to launch Mr. Clean into, into wipes. And in the end, we made it to market. Mr. Clean launched some antibacterial wipes. There were a lot of challenges that I helped the team overcome as the project leader. And I was super proud and super pumped of myself for navigating this and taking this project that had so many challenges. And it was the president's pet project. And I was so pumped to lead it. And then it was an abysmal failure in the market. <laughs> and it just made me realize I had my eyes on the wrong thing. I was way too excited about just leading a project, showing people I could get something to market when the reality is getting it to market or not wasn't really the success whatsoever. It was what should I have seen? When I look back on that, it was like, what should I have seen through the project that should have made me be the loudest person on the team saying, this is wrong. This isn't going to win. And listen, I recognize I was an ABM at the time. And it was, like I said, president's pet project. And I probably am not sure how far I would have gotten with that approach, but I didn't do that. I measured success based on traversing the trappings of the process and the challenges and measured success by getting it to market. And that was an absolute measure, the wrong measure of success. And from that point forward, I just thought in terms of what was going to win in the market. And the process and the challenges to get there were just part of the ride, part of the journey. But the real measure was how confident are you that this is going to win once it gets in the hands of the consumers or in the hands of our customers. And and it took me leading that project that failed miserably and reflecting on that to realize that that was a priority. And it seems silly in retrospect, but of course, that's what I should have been caring about winning in the market. But I had my blinders on at that point. It was about the process and it was about the internal stuff, not the external stuff. And I think that was, that was my biggest learning moment early in my career. Well, and I think it's sometimes tough to remove yourself from that, right? You're ABM, you want to do well. And so it's kind of, oh, if this is the pet project of someone and it does well, we get it to market, this is going to be good for my career. Like it's almost making decisions out of Ego, because that's certainly some of the things that I did with with PNG as well. When I moved from Cincinnati to New York into Prestige, it was kind of like there's a reason why they brought me in, so it's going to be kind of my way, and I'm so much smarter than I'm coming from corporate headquarters and all that. And was, oh no, this is an entirely different business, and I need to similarly focus on what's going to be the best success for the business and what do these people need, as opposed to kind of having in my own head. So I think that's a great kind of learning of recognizing that of getting out of the way of ego and not. How do I show up, but more of what's needed in this particular case to be a success? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think, honestly, just recognizing that was a failure that I could have impacted. I think it was funny because when I interviewed with Gorilla, they, over the years, have interviewed a lot of PNG people. And I used this example of this failure in my interview front and center. And they were like, you might be the first PNGer that's ever failed at anything. <laughs> and I'm like, well, of course, that's not true. I'm just very comfortable talking about the fact that it failed. And there's this pride factor, like you said, ego or pride factor, that the earlier you let go of it, the better off you're going to be. And you see people hang on to it for a long, long time. And eventually, I think it comes back to be an Achilles heel. I think pride or ego is always, in the end, 
going to be the downfall. It's just whether or not it happens early or, or whether it happens late. I think the folks, the earlier you learn that the ego and hubris is not going to serve you well, I think the better you're off you're going to be. Oh, I think so. And I think it's also a great reminder. So for those listening that have maybe gone through a recent failure, just recognize this might be the answer to an interview question in the future that really helps you set you apart, right? Assuming you actually learn from it, right? That's the key <laughs> with failure is failure is not really failure if you've learned from it, if you adapt, which it sounds certainly like you have. And so balancing this idea of of winning in the market, and you know, you've also talked about this focus of, you know, even at an early age, you were, okay, I can show up, I can work hard. How do you balance that with, say, life? Because I know work-life balance is something that's important to you. I was reading a, another interview that you had done. You said that you work hard to achieve personal and professional goals, but you never want to do it at the expense of the, your relationship with your family. And so I'm curious, what strategies do you have for balancing those two things, wanting to win, but also being present for your family? Yeah. The first is making choices where you could put your family first. And I'll give an example. In business school, I was like, I'm not going to go be a consultant. I'm not going to go be an investment banker. I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to be on the road too much. I'm going to be chasing clients too much. I'm just, I'm not going to do that. And I know there are plenty of consultants and investment bakers who found balance in their life. And so I, you know, I don't mean that to say that they don't have balance. But for me, that wasn't a lifestyle choice that I wanted to make, even if it was temporary or even if it was just kind of putting in work early in my career. That I wasn't going to do that. I knew I wanted to focus too much. I wanted to be with my family. So there are kind of macro choices you can make. Then within my career at PNG, I think the biggest thing was making priority calls. Every day you can think about what's going to have the biggest impact on success for the business or in my role and focus on those and constantly be mindful of that. And it takes a little bit of reflection at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day to say, what am I, why am I working on that? That's not going to be big. Or I'm going to do, I became a master at an engineering school of getting an A minus. I knew just how much work I needed to do to get that A minus. But same thing, I think, at work. Okay, there's a certain amount of work where you can put in just enough work to get it where it needs to get to the so what's and nothing more. And then there's the stuff that you have to have polished to the nth degree, right? And so you you have to know to make those choices. And I would sometimes see people around me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going super, super deep on this thing that I'm pretty sure they're boss doesn't care that much about. Meanwhile, the thing that they should care about, I'm like, hey, that's kind of a big one. I would focus on that one, right? And that was has always been my mindset. What's going to have the biggest impact? And that takes communication a lot of times with your boss. Hey, this is my priorities. Do you see it the same way? And just have that transparent conversation. That's one when one-on-ones, PNG always had one-on-ones, and that's something I find really valuable because it's your opportunity to make sure you're seeing eye to eye on priorities. So you have to take them very seriously. These are my priorities for the week. Are you good with that? Cool. All right. And then when I put those together, it had an eye towards making sure I could be home for dinner. And that was how I kind of set my priorities. And and it's worked for me. And I will say I've always worked for people who make it a priority. I've always had bosses who respect that. And I think I probably subliminally or maybe more intentionally that gravitated to those bosses. I'll give you a quote from a PNG back in the day. So one of my when I first moved into marketing, the president of, of home care was Jorge Mesquita. And he made a comment in a big town hall to everybody, for everybody to hear. When I see somebody working at their desk at 6.30 at night, I don't think, man, that person's putting in a shift. I think, man, that person needs to work on his prioritization skills. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I needed. I needed license 
for somebody to say, being there at 6.30 isn't cool. <laughs> it means you're making some, you might just might not be making the right choices. And there might be people who you work for who think being there at 6.30 is cool. I just probably wouldn't work for that guy or gal. And I've been lucky enough to work for folks who, who do find, who find making those choices important. Now, I will say making those choices and doing horribly at your job doesn't work either. <laughs> you have right. to, you do have to prioritize and do great work, but do the greatest work on the great things that are going to have the greatest impact and do just enough on the stuff that only requires just enough. And that's how I've managed it. And I think that there's some great nuggets in there in terms of what you shared. First of all, that's a great quote quote from Jorge, who we've had on the the podcast. But so I think it's great. One that that's something that he shared and, uh, is that yeah, it's not cool. It just means that there's priority calls. But I think it's also interesting that it's something that you latched on to. And this is something that I would do at my at PNG as well or elsewhere. If someone is saying something, then it's like we can hold them accountable. You having that quote means now, if for whatever reason your manager is like, you need to be here at eight p.m., you can be like, well, actually. What about this quote from this person who's pretty senior and big within the organization? Whether it's it's you sharing it back with people or you just latching onto it yourself, it's sometimes finding that inspiration or finding those those leaders who are able to make those priority calls. Because I think you're right. Yeah, some people spend an hour crafting the quote unquote perfect three line email where it's well maybe that should take three minutes and then you spend an hour on this this other thing, making sure that the the priority is there. So I'm curious. Now at Gorilla, as a leader, how do you try to help support that in your own leadership team? How are you kind of, is it just by the way that you kind of manage things? Is it sharing quotes similar to that so other people, like how are you being that leader so other people can look up to you as like, okay, that's why I should have balance too. Oh gosh. I mean, we obsess about it. And I think it started early days with as working for the family as they were in the business every day. They would just say sort of one-off things. Why are you working on that? Why are you doing that over the weekend? Don't do that. You don't need to do that. Or why'd you send that email on a Saturday? You don't need to do that, right? And so it's, okay, of course I know that, right? And so there was just little cues along the way that was, okay, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place, which is great. So now as a leader, I mean, there's certain things that I make clear. If I see a leader send an email on a Friday night, I mean, I'm going to send a note right back to him. I don't care if you write an email on a Friday night, don't send an email on a Friday night. You can write it and draft it and have it sitting there all day long. Send it Monday morning. You might have in your in your signature, I don't expect you to respond on emails and evenings and weekends. Okay, well, if you don't expect to respond, don't send it, right? So, so that's one. I think the second is resourcing. I want my teams to develop resource plans that are resourced for a 40-hour work week. <laughs> Not a 50-hour work week, a 40-hour work week. And knowing that at times, there's going to be flex and there's going to be a little bit of a bump and we'll absorb those. But I don't want to absorb those for years. And I certainly don't really want to absorb them for months. We'll absorb them for weeks. And if it's week after week after week and month after month after month, I'm going, okay, you're probably not staffed right. Let's talk about that. How do you relief? Well, how do you create relief? I will say with COVID, particular on the direct labor side of things and manufacturing and logistics, that's hard right now. Because we're just having a hard time getting the resources, even though we want them. It is a hard time, but the orders keep coming. And so I will say when there's resource constraints like we've never seen before in the world of direct labor, that has been a bigger challenge. When you're like, no, 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 this isn't about green lighting resources. This is about finding resources. That is when it gets a little bit harder. So anyway, going back to role modeling the right behavior, don't send that email on a Friday night, asking the right questions. Are you resourced for your people to really work 40 hours? Are you resourced for them to work 50 or 60? I guess those are the two biggest things. Free it up with resources and role model the right behavior and hold people accountable to it. 
Well, and I think it's a great reminder because I think that so many people mirror what they see their leaders do. And I think one of the things, one of the best things that one of my leaders at PNG would do is he would say, I'm leaving at 3 p.m. today to go and pick up my kid at soccer practice. Rather than I'm not available at 3 p.m. and kind of shadow or kind of hide why they're leaving, he's just very open. No, I'm going because this is a work-life thing. And so to your point of one, not being that leader that's sending the email at Friday, but also being the one, hey, you sent this at Friday night, schedule it to Monday. If it's better for your work-life balance to write the email right now, okay, that's okay, but send it on Monday so we're setting kind of the right standard. So I love that kind of as a focus. And and you mentioned working for the family. So uh, Gorilla Glue started by a family, been family owned and also family run for a while. And then you come in as VP, then CMO, and now the president and CEO. I'm curious, what was that process like or what is that process currently like taking over from what is a very family workplace culture orientation and actually run by the family to now you're the, the non-family person kind of stepping into those shoes. How did you kind of manage that transition to be to be able to keep that family feel? Mm-hmm. It's funny, when they asked me to take on this role, I was honored and it didn't take me long to say I would absolutely want to do it. But I started reflecting on what it means for me as an employee, not just for me in my role. And I was like, man, one of the coolest things about this place was that it's family owned and operated. And that people all know that it's owned by five brothers. They're all in the business. They're all very well known and liked and visible. And so early days, I made it clear because the the Raglans wanted to give me space early to make it clear that I was the leader. And I really appreciated that. And they did that. But what I was saying is at the same time was, I actually want you guys to be extremely visible. I want the entire organization to look at me as a representation of the family. Not as a family member, because obviously my last name is different than theirs, but as someone who is saddled up right beside them to deliver on the goals and the desires of the family and the business, because they have all come to trust that the Raglans want to do the right thing for their employees. They want to do the right thing for the brands, for the customers. And it, it, me being the first sort of non-family to come inside, come, I wanted them to know, no, no, I'm going to do things the way that the Raglans would do things. That's my intention. And so making it very clear that that we're simpatico, we're talking about everything, even all the way down to the to how I communicate with the Raglans. I don't polish things up for them. I don't manage up. I don't manage a message. What's out there? What is, they know everything I know almost all the time. And it's because in a family owned business, this is their baby. They don't want, they don't want to be managed. They want to know where all the ugly stuff is. They want to know the warts and the freckles and the, and the birthmarks because they value that. It's important to them. It's just a different, I feel a different level of accountability for every single employee because of the raglans, because of the fact that it's a family company. And I think it just makes it a little bit of a different dynamic from a public company. And not to say public companies don't care about their employees, but it's a little bit of a different factor because I feel I'm furthering a little mini social contract between the raglans and the employees. And I'm the keeper of that contract. And so I just, I have sort of a, I think a really healthy respect for wanting to make sure that the family is aware of that and is connected to it and knows every bit of what I'm doing so that it's really done in a way that they would support and get behind. Which I think is a a really important reminder. I mean, whether regardless of kind of how your current business is run, if you're listening to this, just the importance of kind of that honoring in some ways, the positive things and good things about the legacy. And now a word from our sponsor. 
As the year comes to a close, we want to share an amazing opportunity for all of our end-of-year giving. As you may know, the PNG Alumni Foundation creates economic empowerment opportunities for those in need around the world, providing marginalized communities sustainable paths to prosperity. As a registered nonprofit with hundreds of volunteers around the world, the PNG Alumni Foundation does this each year by providing grants to some amazing organizations, funded through contributions by alums like you and me. The PNG Alumni Foundation is creating real, impactful economic opportunities for communities around the world, across rural Africa and Asia, in urban Mumbai and Cincinnati, as well as so many other amazing and deserving programs around the world, powered by PNG people. For the month of December to accelerate all of our year-end giving, we've got two really exciting opportunities that we hope will motivate you to donate to the great work of the PNG Alumni Foundation. First, thanks to the generosity of former PNG CEO John Pepper and his wife Francie, all year-end donations of any size will be matched dollar for dollar. And to make things even more interesting, all donations given in the month of December will also make you eligible to win a 30-minute Zoom call with some of our most prominent alumni names. Your donation of any size will enter you for the chance to win a conversation with folks like former PNG CEO AG Lafley, former Unilever CEO Paul Pullman, Logitech CEO Bracken Darrell, Danone President Sylvia Devia, former Clorox CEO Ben Odor, and many more accomplished leaders. You can learn more on how to donate and win a chance for an amazing one-on-one alumni conversation at pgalums.com slash raffle. Or you can simply give and have your donations matched by John and Francie Pepper at pgalums.com slash donate. No donation is too small or too big, and it's never too late to start giving back. Your donation is tax deductible and through the power of PNG people, we put to great use uplifting communities around the world. So be sure to visit pgalums.com slash raffle or pgalums.com slash donate for your chance to donate and win before the end of the year. And now back to our show. One of the things with Gorilla is pretty consistently ranked as one of the best places to work in Cincinnati. And people have this kind of this passion or this excitement for working for the organization. And so not only do you want to keep that because you want to keep the family on field, but it's also a positive thing for the organization. When people are like, oh, no, this is a positive place to work for. It's probably helping with recruiting and retention and things like that, particularly now when it can be challenging for for staffing certain things. And so from that angle, maintaining both that professional, but then also family feel in the workplace, or I know it's also kind of a fun workplace and humor is part of what's involved. I'm curious how you see that balance between professionalism, getting results and having a little bit of fun or having this family feel. Oh, gosh. When I was named CEO, we have five core values. And I said, there are two that I like the most. And that's probably not completely true, but I'm going to use it for effect here. And one is have fun, be passionate and show it. That's one of our core values. And I would simplify that down to come to work, be your whole self and put your whole self into the job. That's going to be what makes fun and passion happen at work. So that's one. And then there's a second, which is strive for excellence in everything we do every day. And you can do both. And I think that's the key is that you don't have to make a choice between excellence and fun and passion. And I've always tried to instill that at PNG. I look back at some of my times on the Family Dollar account, some of my times on the Swiffer business, where I would just be crying, laughing in meetings because I just work with fun people who don't take themselves too seriously. Yet you're talking about something that's really important. It could be some big distribution win or some big innovation win. I think in the end, it comes down to not taking yourself too seriously. If you don't take yourself too seriously, you can realize that you can 
push the puck forward a little bit and have fun while you're doing it at the same time. And I'll tell you, I couldn't be at a place where I couldn't have fun. If fun wasn't part of the culture, that is one of the first things I'm looking for. Can people have fun? Can do people take themselves too seriously? And I, I do think there's pockets in every organization where that's an issue, but by and large, that is we make it a point to try and have fun. We, we build it into the day. We build it into the year. We have sort of a calendar where there's certain things we do that are literally, that's what it's just built for, just to go have fun. And I think that's super important. Life is way too short to take yourself too seriously. I completely agree. And I love that balance and that distinction is that, yeah, that professionalism and fun aren't antithetical. It's not a, an either or that you can still strive for excellence and have fun while doing it. And the, that both are going to support each other. Having fun and being passionate, I think is going to help you to reach that excellence. And when you're having that excellence, it does make it a little easier to to have a little bit more fun with it. So I love that kind of combination of the the two things. And And one of the things that you mentioned is this, desire to kind of bring your whole self to work where certainly possible. And I think part of, I don't know if it's necessarily the challenge of it, but one of the things that we know more is more important than perhaps ever is diversity, equity, and inclusion. So creating the space that people from very diverse backgrounds can be their whole self at work. And so I'm curious, what's been your approach either as a leader or what you're doing at, at Gorilla to create a space that is psychologically safe for people to be their whole self, but from these diverse backgrounds. Yeah. The biggest thing I think we're learning as it pertains particularly to inclusion, which I think bringing your whole self into work is this idea that you can be who you are and be included at the same time. And the magic behind inclusion is to be able to have a conversation in the open about differences. Because we'd be lying to ourselves if we thought every single employee can really relate to every other employee's differences, right? It's just, it's not the world we live in. So what you have to do is encourage and allow folks to say, hey, where there are differences, let's put them on the table and let's have an open dialogue about what they mean and how they don't necessarily preclude us from achieving our goals together and building a culture and building a biz- brands and building a business together. And I think for a long time, the thinking is, hey, we're not prepared to have that conversation or that's a great conversation for a coffee table, not in this building, (laughs) but it's not a conversation for in this building. And especially in this day and age with how there's so much dividedness out in the world and so much divisiveness in terms of things you might read and see, when you actually sit down and talk to human beings who are willing to listen to each other, there's a lot more bridging than what may be represented in what we might read or see every day. That bridging happens through conversation and shared objectives. And so that's kind of what our focus has been, has been about let's equip each other to have these conversations. We're not where we need to be, but we're on the journey to just getting better at having those conversations because those conversations about difference is what will lead to inclusiveness, which is what will lead to folks' comfort level and bringing their whole self to work and being feeling psychologically safe. And I think everybody deserves to feel psychologically safe at work. Full stop. Yeah. I agree with that. And so with these conversations, because you make a good point, I think many people, they think about, yeah, that should happen, but not here, not us. That's not company time to do that or have it outside because maybe it gets hairy or whatever. But how do you actually bring that internal? Is it just encouraging it? Is it, nope, hey, here are set times to have conversations? Is it drawing on managers to kind of facilitate them? How do you actually start to encourage that? Because I would imagine... It might be easier to have those conversations. I say this as a very privileged person, as a straight white male living in the United States. 
oh yeah, it's easy to have that conversation versus if you're someone who isn't as well represented, you may not feel comfortable. How are you kind of creating the space for people to have those conversations? Well, it's like everything else. It's a journey. I think for us, it starts by just being willing and comfortable to have, we've created a diversity committee where their job is to have a calendar of celebrating the differences that diversity in our organization. And so we didn't have that not that long ago. And so it's like, okay, well, now we're having a calendar where we know, I think, seven or eight times a year where we're going to celebrate specific cultures, cultures that are represented, cultures and ways of life that are represented at Gorilla. And so, all right, we're just going to put that out there. That's going to be step number one. Step number two is we're going to create forums where folks can have conversations, right? So, and they tend to be built around the diversity events that we do. But that's a place where we can have the conversations. Now, the next phase that we're working on is equipping folks to be able to tackle the conversations when they come up unprompted. And I think that's where we can be better here at the Gorilla Glue Company and probably where a lot of of companies can be better. And so we're early days there. So I'd be lying if I said we're where we need to be on that part of it, because I think that's that's where it can get tough. So it's like, okay, cool. When there's a diversity calendar, we can talk about this stuff. But when I'm on the line and I sense that folks aren't appreciating my difference, or respecting my lifestyle, that's where things can get tough. And so that is probably the tougher onion to peel back, but we got to recognize that that is something we have to tackle and equip the organization to have those discussions. So whether it be trainings, readings, symposiums, that kind of stuff that get folks comfortable with the fact that there are going to be differences at work. Even if outside of work, you don't seek out differences. At work, you're going to have differences and you're going to respect it. You're going to come together to deliver on our shared goals and objectives. Yeah, well, and I appreciate what you said, that it is an evolution. I think some people could look at, we need to do something. So, okay, we'll have these kind of diversity things, these events. Great, we're done. I think it's a great, it's a fantastic start because as you mentioned, I imagine it prompts some conversations. You have something to celebrate something then for people that aren't aware. Hey, what is this thing that we're celebrating or why this way? It's going to create some of these conversations to have around inclusion, but to be able to go that next step to say, not only creating the forum for it, but also equipping people with the, the skill set. Because if you grew up in a place without exposure to some of these things, you may not know how to have some of these conversations. So I love that it is this evolution and it's a journey, as you mentioned, that you're continuing to progress on. And so as we start to wrap up, there's a a couple of kind of fun questions we just want to answer, quick questions, quick, quick answers, just get to know you a little bit more for this. So the first question for you is, what is a fact that surprises people when they hear it about you? So for example, a fact about me is that although I am left-handed, I shoot pool right-handed. Just a random small thing. People are like, surprised. Why do you do it that way? I don't know myself, but a small fact that surprises people about you. Well, I don't know. It's because I'm a very plain, square-looking white male, but I am a big, big fan of hip-hop. And so for some reason, that surprises people. But I, I listen to a lot of rap music. It's kind of my go-to. So that tends to surprise people. Yeah, I am also the same there. And and perhaps one of the reasons why I loved Hamilton so much among other albums and things like that. So that is fantastic. And speaking of audio, though, I know you are a podcast guy. So of course, aside from this one, I'm sure that could be the, the answer. What's a podcast that you've heard recently that stuck with you? So my wife is obsessed with, and I'm trying to remember the name. I don't listen to it that often, but it's great. It's a podcast with Jason Bateman. Sudeikis, I think, is on it every once in a while. Kind of the Jasons, the comedians. And she gets a real kick out of that. So she's got me listening to that every once in a while. So smart list, I think is what that smart list. There you go. That's yeah. the one. Yes. Yeah. 
Yep. I love it. And as someone who grew up in Ohio, what's a thing that you particularly enjoy about Cincinnati? If you were to if you were to move away from Cincinnati, what's something that you would miss? Okay, so I know that I'm a real Cincinnatian when I say this. And I think the real Cincinnatians will get that. I apologize to my parents because they're going to say you're from Toledo. But Skyline Chili. So <laughs> when I come back from vacation, I say I'm not really home from vacation until I've gone to Skyline Chili. And so that tends to be the first meal we have when we get back from vacation. And if someday I don't live in, if I retire somewhere outside of Cincinnati, I don't know what I'm going to do. But Skyline Chili, without question, is a must. As someone who grew up in Cincinnati, I agree. I think we all, any spot that we grew up, there's certain foods or things that you associate. And then the same way, whenever I come back to Cincinnati, it is Skyline and Graders are the first the two things that I want to make sure that I eat while I'm there. I love it. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. The last question I have for you as as we start to wrap up, as we think about the future going forward, what is one final piece of advice or perhaps even a challenge that you'd give to the next generation of leaders? Listen, I, I think the thing that has enabled me the most in my career is when I let go of what I thought other people would think success would look like for me. And going to business school put this big pressure on me that I felt I have to be this big successful person because I went and put all the stakes on the business school or whatever. And I felt all this pressure and I thought, what am I doing? So when you let go of what you think other people expect of you and you focus just on what is going to make you happy in your life, everything else kind of falls to the side and becomes important. It becomes not important and you just focus on your happiness. It's easy to look at somebody who's become a CEO and say, oh gosh, that person, they must have pushed really hard to get there. And the reality is I made choices along the way that made me happy. And that was it. There were choices that made me happy in my life. And that would be what I'd push. So if that means you're going to be a barista for the rest of your life, because that's what makes you happy, don't let somebody else's construct of success make that choice seem like the wrong choice for you. And that would be my biggest thing. The pressure of other people's expectations of you won't help you in your career. It's going to be about what what makes you happy and focus on that first and foremost. I think fantastic advice to leave off. Make the choice along the way that make you happy and and things, everything else will start to kind of fall into place. And and back to that prioritization that you talked about as being so key, it probably helps with that, that prioritization. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Learnings from Leaders. Thank you, sir. I enjoyed it. And like I say, I'm honored to do it. So thank you, Drew. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. It's just not one Latino and not just one Hispanic, that it's just much more nuanced than that. Interestingly, the beauty of television is that the barriers to switch are none, right? So you can watch whatever you want at whatever time you want it. Focus less about language and more about culture and and what the theme is and what the story is. For example, when you're watching Univision News, we're not just doing the news in Spanish. We're really putting all the news through the filter of what does it mean to be a Hispanic that is living in the U.S.? 
Our perspective, our storytelling, our passion points, the way we tell the story really has to do with the fact that it really touches who we are. And so it's less about that language and it's more about who we are and, and what our role is in this country. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.